1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. Yes, that was one very long breath, and I've got a guest, Russell Moore, whose introduction is probably about the same. He is, are you exactly president? A, a president, okay. President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, who commutes right from between Nashville and Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Your life is somewhat split up these days, right. in terms of, and your travel miles are in great shape. They are. Indeed. <laughs> and we're here to discuss uh, issues of culture and culture engagement and kind of just the cultural scene in the United States. And so my opening question – first of all, thank you for coming in. We really well, do appreciate uh, you being a part of this. Um, how, does a, how does a good Mississippi Southern Baptist boy who became a theologian like you end up doing what you're doing now?
2: Well, I think it's probably like in most people's lives, you look back and you see things that you thought were cul-de-sacs and diversions that that ended up being God preparing you for what you would do later on. Hmm. That certainly is the case for me. I uh, I felt a call to ministry pretty early on, uh, say a 12-year-old. And then I started moving away from that uh, Mm. in high school, moving toward a political life. And so I ended up working in politics uh, for a while. Mm. Found myself on Capitol Hill. Uh, The Library of Congress would allow Hill staffers to get discard books. And I had a pile of books. And one of them was a pastor's manual. Uh, on weddings and funerals and what have you. And it wasn't until I got back to my apartment that I thought, why did I want that? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the Lord used to pull me back into ministry. Hmm. Um, And now uh, those two parts of my life have come together in, in what I'm doing right now. So
1: now you 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 were at Southern for a while. Is that right? Yes,
2: I was provost and, and dean of the School of Theology at okay. Southern for ten years.
1: Oh wow! And then now, did you go to the your current job from Southern? Yes, okay. in 2013. In 2013, mm-hmm. and so. Um, and how did how did how did Southern Baptists come to recognize that this was an area you could work in? Did you do your theological work in this area?
2: Yes, like, I did. I, mm-hmm. I did my um, I did my dissertation on the relationship of the Kingdom of God to social and political uh, involvement. Oh wow! And so, as a matter of fact. Uh, Early in my doctoral studies, one of the areas I was looking at was uh, progressive dispensationalism, uh-huh. so your, your work, uh, and Craig Blazing's, and so that was, that was my primary area of uh, – of work,
1: and so you've been. Uh, so that means you've been doing what you're doing now for about three years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and and so what what exactly does the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention do? What are, what exactly are you responsible? Well, we
2: do two things. Mm-hmm. The first is to equip churches and families to think through ethical implications of the Christian life, mm-hmm. and so that's uh, our name used to be the Christian Life Commission, mm-hmm. yeah. and so that's everything from marriage and family. To racial reconciliation, to adoption and orphan care, to end of life questions, any any place where the gospel is being applied uh, to life, and then the second thing is to speak from the churches to government, media, uh, various uh, various sectors of of, uh, of life uh, in America and internationally.
1: And so you haven't been quiet this last
2: year. No, it's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: been busy. Uh, so, so well, let's just dive right in. Um, you, you look at the culture, and I think you've developed a reputation for trying to urge the church to a different kind of strategy. You wrote a book called Onward, that uh, is uh, really calling for a recalibration in many ways of the way the church engages with culture and society. So let's let's talk a little bit about that book and, and what it represents in terms of recalibration. First of all, you're. An, uh, I'd like to get your analysis of what we did <laughs> that, that, that so enamored you with what the church was doing that you wrote the book mm-hmm. and then and, and then secondly where you where you think the church should go so let's talk about kind of where we were in in your your assessment of what the culture war either did or did not accomplish for the church
2: well i think I think the culture war um, through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s into the the early 2000s was symbiotic on a cultural, nominal Christianity rooted in the Bible Belt Mm -hmm. um, in in ways that brought out some of the best of Bible Belt cultural Christianity Mm -hmm. and a lot of the worst Mm. of that. And so I think in many ways the church um, I think, in some ways, the activist evangelicalism of the last generation did continually remind Christians of their civic obligations mm-hmm. in, in some in some helpful ways, and then also served to create a great deal of, of cynicism and wreckage, both within the church and outside the church. And I think a lot of that had to do with too high of expectations mm-hmm. uh, on the on the part of some Christians, followed by a, a loss of priority uh, mm-hmm. of gospel and mission when it comes to, to political engagement and social engagement generally.
1: And, and the hard part here, of course, is the kind of, and, and we've seen this in history before, when the Christian church gets allied to raw political power, um, it, it, it sometimes doesn't come out so well for the church and the right. gospel. I mean, right. I, th- I think most people's assessment of what happened when the church got very, very close to Constantine is – I mean, there were some blessings, obviously, for mm-hmm. the expansion of the gospel and for uh, for what what that represented for Christianity to no longer be persecuted. But there also were some – some uh, how can I say it? Some, there's some confusion introduced mm-hmm. about what the gospel was really about mm-hmm. and why it was necessary. Um, are, are, would, would that be a good – historical analogy to to some of what you're seeing
2: i think so and I, and i think i think one of the things that that tended to happen in evangelical life if you think of the old state churches where mm-hmm. the the state expected a an established church to represent the state's interest in many ways evangelicalism was doing that not for the state but for a particular culture Mm -hmm. and uh, southern midwestern bible belt Mm -hmm. uh, culture in in ways that sometimes confuse the very essence of what the gospel itself is Mm -hmm. where that's confused with uh, certain cultural norms and cultural expectations and nostalgia uh, sometimes for a mythical golden age in the past that I think had some serious theological implications for Mm -hmm. the way we view America, for the way we view ourselves, um, and led to then some of this kind of – fear and panic and kind of apocalyptic talk uh, coming from Christians who don't know what to do mm-hmm. when they look around and they say, our neighbors don't agree with us, they don't share our, our values, and we're not maybe the real America that mm-hmm. we assumed ourselves to be. Uh, there, there shouldn't be any reason for that fear and panic. We should have always known mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to be swimming upstream in any culture, anywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the theological roots of that because I think that's an important point. And that is, uh, you talked about you've written about the kingdom of God for much of your career. Um, What is it about the kingdom of God that should (laughs) tell? The way I ask this question is, what is about the ministry of Jesus that should tell us Mm -hmm. that that to be a Christian um, means that you're in a you're in a challenging position in relationship to the world, and oftentimes the world is going to push back. Mm
2: Well, I mean, if, if we're following Jesus, uh, what I often do when I'm talking to evangelical audiences is to go to John 18 and Jesus' interaction with Pilate. and, mm-hmm. and Because what I'm, what I'm concerned about is that especially in evangelical Christianity, we tend to overreact to the last bad thing. hmm and so when I meet someone who wants to, for instance, say, don't worry about the imperatives of Scripture, just, just talk about who we are in Christ. Typically somebody who's coming out of a really legalistic background. Mm -hmm. And when I meet somebody who wants to say, you know, we want to have rules for everything, Mm -hmm. typically somebody coming out of a really chaotic sort of background and they Mm -hmm. want some boundaries. I think the same thing happens in social engagement. Mm -hmm. So you have people who when they see a really hyper-politicized or uh, hyper-culturally, uh, informed Christianity. They want to respond with a kind of withdrawal. Um, I think what we see in the life of Jesus, is if you look at that encounter, Jesus is not panicked before Pilate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Jesus recognizes my kingdom is not of this world mm-hmm. and says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Mm-hmm. And so he rec- recognizes the difference between the kingdom and uh, the Roman Empire. But at the same time we have to remember that we in our context are standing both where Jesus stood and where Pilate stood. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're we're as citizens people who hold the sword uh, mm-hmm. that Paul talks about in Romans 13.
1: Yeah, it's a participatory democracy. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: we're either going to we're either going to do that with consciences that are informed by the gospel or consciences that are informed by something else. Mm-hmm. So we're we're in both of those places at the same time. I think that's important to know.
1: Yeah, I, I when I, when I think about this in relation to Jesus' ministry, I like to make the point that the whole second half of Jesus' ministry, once Peter confesses him, and their initial expectation is what I call – they want an Arnold Schwarzenegger Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll be back with an iron fist. Um, and he's saying, well, wait, before we get there, <laughs> you know, there's this little thing of the cross, mm-hmm. and, uh, and if they're going to crucify me, then uh, you better be prepared as well for a pushback. And and yet your call is going to be to do two things simultaneously that are hard. Challenge people on the one hand with the, with the standards that God calls us to live and the recognition that they don't live by those standards, and extend an invitation for the opportunity for God's grace to shower over that and take care of that. Mm-hmm. And it's that combination of challenge and invitation that we're into. And so when we become a part of the kingdom of God, we don't join the world, we actually are separated from it. We one metaphor is exiles. We become exiles in a foreign mm-hmm. land. Another metaphor is we're ambassadors. Right. We become ambassadors who represent God, and in that, in those pictures, are the two of the primary ways we're supposed to see our identity, so that our circumstances don't overwhelm us because we trust in in the activity of a sovereign God, whose whose relationship with us is secure because of what He's done for us in Christ. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think it's provo- provocation that leads to reconciliation. That's mm-hmm. what you see consistently in the life of Jesus. So mm-hmm. when when people when people seem to be on board with what he's saying, Jesus almost always says, you don't understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. He presses the provocation until mm-hmm. there's a sense of uh, – even among his own disciples that we see in, in John 6 and, and elsewhere. But it's ultimately leading toward reconciliation, people reconciled to God, people reconciled to one another. I think sometimes in our cultural engagement, we forget one or the other of those. So we we don't want to provoke, we Mm -hmm. want to simply accommodate to the culture around us. Or we assume that we're in a place of provocation for the sake of provocation. Mm Rather than really genuinely wanting to see people reconciled,
1: that's right. Yeah, I I, I call I call it Jimmy Cagney theology. You dirty rat, you shouldn't be doing (laughs) that. There's not much good news in that in that message. So um, it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting. Tension that we have now. There's another unique thing that's wrapped up in this, in the in the challenge and invitation, uh, and in the the issue of uh, of association with the state and social presence, and that's the idea of power. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my listening to you, the thing that stands out to me, or one of the things that stands out to me about what you're saying, is the way in which you are trying to help Christians understand. Um, How do I want to say this? Um, The seduction of power, I think is the phrase I want to think of, Is, is that power is this crazy thing that we think is great if we have it or we seek it, but it actually isn't at least the kind of power we're talking about – there are different ways to talk about power – it isn't the type of thing that's really at the core of the gospel. There's a different kind of power that's at the core of the gospel than the type of power we're talking about here that's social power. Help us differentiate that a little bit.
2: Well, I mean, you, you look in the New Testament and Jesus and then the Apostle Paul particularly and Peter as well recognize uh, civic power, mm-hmm. uh, recognize social power. So Paul, uh, for instance, will appeal uh, all the way up to Agrippa and mm-hmm. he's, he's working within the system of, of political power. But they are always consciously subverting that and minimizing that, mm-hmm. especially among people who, who tend to prize that and to see that as that kind of coercive power over other people mm-hmm. as being the, the end goal. And that, frankly, is a temptation not just for Christians who are operating in the activist world or in the, uh, or in the political electoral world, all of us are engaging politically all the time. It's mm-hmm. just what we do together in, as groups of, of people. And so we're we're thinking through and we're engaging that sort of power all the time. Question is whether or not we see that as ultimate and whether or not we see what it is that that does to us. And so I think that when you don't have a consciousness about what's happening to you uh, with the use of power, I think that's when we become in a really dangerous place and I think we've we've seen that often in an evangelical christianity that defines ultimate power and influence in the world's terms. I don't think that's only in political activism. I think the same thing happens often in terms of uh, say church planting mm-hmm. or evangelism. Sometimes we assume, well, Let's influence the culture, and the way we do that is to target the people who are culturally influential, and then that trickles down to other people. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, that we shouldn't engage with people who mm. bear cultural uh, influence or, or power. What I am saying is that's not typically the way that God. Works. Mm-hmm. God often works from not just the bottom up, but from below the bottom, uh, in, people, from the inside out. Yeah, people yeah. That, that others have, have completely given up on.
1: Yes, uh, we, and by that, uh, that's a, that's the a second theme I'm going to want to come back to, and that is the role of what what you've described as the invisible people, uh, and and the way in which God wo- affirms with and works with. Uh, that particular group, but I want to stay with power here for a second. You said that power has a tendency to do things to people, and, I, and I, so that raises the question: Okay, so what does it do to people? Um, mm-hmm. What? Wh- how does? You know, the, there's the old line that goes with the Acton University that they love to quote, uh, you know, over and over and over again, uh, power power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Some variation of that. I probably mm-hmm. didn't quote it exactly right, but um, uh, what is it that power does that, that gets us off track?
2: Well, I think one of the things is to is to consistently bring us to a place where we, we forget the nature of limits. I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the one of the, the primary problems that we have in in life general is is wanting to see ourselves either as gods or as animals. Hmm. Um, either we're those who are driven along by our instincts, um, and we're below what it means to be be created in the image of God, or we're more than creatures. We have we have the ability to decide good and evil mm-hmm. uh, on our own terms, and to and to coercively enact that over other people. I think that temptation is persistently there. That's what Jesus is having to correct with the disciples uh, consistently when they're they're thinking of their own influence, and to say this is not the way the Gentiles operate. Is mm-hmm. that's not the way that I'm teaching you to operate. And then when you come to Especially when you're talking about cultural and political influence, for Christians, there's always the temptation to use the gospel as a means to an end mm-hmm. uh, to that political power mm-hmm. or, or to that cultural influence in ways that ultimately erodes the, the witness of the church. It it turns us into people who aren't primarily motivated by the gospel and it it creates cynicism among our neighbors. Mm. So in one of the I deal in all kinds of issues. One of them being religious freedom, mm-hmm. religious liberty. One of the things that I find is that people who are on the other side of me on mm-hmm. a lot of basic religious freedom issues, most of them don't get mm-hmm. religious motivation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They're not hostile to it. They just don't understand it. Right. And so they assume you must really have some other motive. Yeah. Uh, nobody really believes they're going to stand in judgment and their conscience needs to be free. So you must really be about saving some money or uh, creating some power. I think when Christians assume power for the sake of power mm-hmm. and don't define that and subvert that with the gospel, we, we further create that sort of, of cynicism that Christianity is just a means that you're using to another end rather than – um, the way uh, that leads you through the the flesh of Jesus. We to become God. perceived
1: as just another special interest group among the competing special interest groups that are after people's votes and or money. Yeah, and a
2: and a particularly pernicious special interest group, right. Because we're we're using uh, the threat of eternity, right, uh, in order to accomplish goals that are that are far less than that.
1: And of course, in contrast to that is the picture of the gospel being. Uh, Important and and the missions more. I like I like to say to people, um, you can have uh, that the emphasis on circumstances and changing the circumstances is the answer to our problems is is a little bit like ignoring the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, you had good laws, but people who needed changed hearts, and so what did you have? You had chaos. And What was God's response to that? He gave us a new, the hope of a new covenant. The new covenant says, "I'm going to change you from the inside," yeah. and that's why you got a new covenant because real change requires real heart transplant, yeah. and it requires being a new creation in Christ. It requires understanding that you need what only God pro- can provide because you can't do it on your own strength. It, it There's a lot of, uh, of self-renunciation in the positive sense that comes with the gospel in terms of what God can provide, and the danger of our being able to manipulate um, outcomes or attempt to do so or believing that we can. Robs us of the understanding that we really need to be dependent on God.
2: Yeah, and that's, we learn that personally, and that also applies culturally. I mean, someone asked me the other day what biblical figure I most identify with, and I said, I think the Gadarene demoniac, because uh, you have someone who, what's what's changing is Jesus saying, who are you? Mm-hmm. What What is your name? Mm-hmm. And, and the response is, "We are. We are many. We are. We are legion." And Jesus speaks beyond that directly to that person. But what's interesting in that is that prior to that, mm-hmm. the people are trying to restrain the demoniac can't, mm-hmm. even with chains. Right. That's not enough. Right. I mean what has to happen is to reach into the real nub of the of the issue, not simply to, to restrain and to deal with the, the implications of that and the circumstances. And the interesting thing
1: it. is that on the other side of that, of course, what we see after the exorcism is performed is he's sitting <laughs> clothed and in his right in his mind. Right mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, at peace before Jesus won. Wanting, wanting, actually to follow Jesus like all the other disciples do. And Jesus says, well, wait, I actually have another assignment for you. You can rep- me represent me quite beautifully right here where you are. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a wonderful calling.
0: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Uh, let me ask you this. Um, as you uh, are you in general hopeful about where we are or are we in a place where we're really at a turning point and we need to the church needs to kind of wrestle with where it's where it, where it it needs to be. I am a short-term pessimist
2: and a long-term optimist, okay. and, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm more optimistic than pessimistic. And I don't just mean that in terms of the eschaton, I right, mean, where, right, right. you know, as Cain said, in the long run we're all dead, and right, as Christians right. in the long run we're all resurrected from the dead. But even before that, I think what we're seeing happening in the next generation of Christians mm-hmm. makes me really hopeful. Uh, about the future and about the way that we're going to be able to engage with our neighbors in the future.
1: Well, that's an interesting analysis because I think a lot of people look at what's going on and they think the sky is almost falling, yeah. and that, and that, and that yeah. the, uh, the next sound you will hear is the great thud upon us. Right. And so, uh, you and I both feel that there there actually is some hope in what lies ahead. Uh, but there also is some very real reflection that the church needs to engage in. So let's talk about, let's talk about it in two parts. Um, the 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 reflection that the church needs to engage in. You wrote a book onward that really is an appeal for a different kind of engagement. Um, why don't you talk about what that engagement looks like and and compare or contrast it to what we have seen or what most people are familiar with when they think of the church's engagement?
2: Well, my perspective on the future can kind of be summed up in that old grateful dead song Touch of Gray, mm-hmm. in which uh, they say it's even worse than it appears, but it's all right.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, I think, I think the
2: situation around us culturally is much worse than mm-hmm. than, than what we know in mm-hmm. all sorts of ways, just as the situation within us is much worse uh than, than what we know know. Um, and I also think that the problem is Uh, a lot of times there are Christians who are looking backward. If Mm -hmm. we can just get back to Mm -hmm. uh, some particular point, as one Christian said to me, we just need to get our country back to where it was before this culture fell apart. Mm -hmm. And my response was to say, you don't remember when Mm -hmm. this culture fell apart because Mm -hmm. it fell apart uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers (laughs) uh, long before you were ever here to see it. And I I think that's right. But we also have – I mean, we have a promise of a gospel that brings with it its own power. Uh, the church is being built by Jesus himself. We not only know that by faith, we also are seeing that uh, all around the world where mm-hmm. where Jesus is building his church, including in some very, very difficult places, mm-hmm. and, and creating leadership for his church in ways that ought to give us a, a, a good deal of hopefulness. I think one of the problems is – when it comes to activist organizations, mm-hmm. really across the spectrum, doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether they're religious or non religious, what they tend to do is to overpromise and to freak out. Mm-hmm. And so, what you want to say to people is uh, the situation is dire. So, you're an environmentalist organization, the way you get people to respond to direct mail. Is to say, if you don't act now, you won't uh, be breathing. Tomorrow. You won't be breathing yeah, <laughs> yeah. next year. We're going to have, you know, Miami. Yeah. Will be underwater right. by next right. year, uh, and that that's what gets people to. Resp- and we can fix it, mm-hmm. but the problem is that long term, people get burned over by that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's exactly what you've You're been saying to all and too many times. Yeah, and I think the same thing happens within uh, within Christianity. This sense of everything's falling apart. We're not going to survive uh, the next uh, several. years years, and and we're the ones who can fix it, uh, mm-hmm. if, if only we would uh, fill in the blank, both over promises and under promises, and, and creates a, 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 a system of undue fear and undue outrage uh, from people who ought not to be thrown mm-hmm. uh, that easily. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I notice is that Jesus is preternaturally calm mm-hmm. in the Gospels when mm-hmm. everyone else is freaking out mm-hmm. and Jesus is sometimes in anguish. Even
1: sleeping. And sometimes he's sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus is
2: in anguish yeah. when everyone else is calm. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's in the temple uh, with the fig tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are sleeping and Jesus is the one mm-hmm. who is sweating blood mm-hmm. because he has a different understanding of what, what the priorities are. And so I think the kind of super apocalyptic language which betrays a lack of confidence, both in the gospel and in God's creation structures. I mean, people are are meant to flourish within certain boundaries and in certain ways. If we really believe that God's designed it that way resiliently, Mm -hmm. then there's there's a certain point at which people say... We're we're burned out by this. We're burned over by this. Mm. What else is there? Mm-hmm. And we need to be the people who keep the light lit to the old paths and and to the living water to be able to say there's an alternative to mm-hmm. these things.
1: Now it, it it strikes me in in listening to you that there's this there's this there's this tension between how can I say this uh, between this this angst that people feel because of where the culture is. And, and they believe that God has made certain commitments and promises, but in the end, their nervousness reflects, I think, a lack of faith and trust, not not just in in God, but in his promises, his word. You know, the people who say, we want to live by the word are the very people who are in effect denying, well, do you really believe God when he says he's committed to you for eternity and this is going to work out in the end, so mm-hmm. that our our need to be Overly freaked out (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, shouldn't exist,
2: right? And that's hard to do. I mean, that's hard to do personally, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's hard to do uh, in view of in view of the culture around us. I had a, a wise older Christian who said to me one day something that has stuck with me. He said, "the the most important cultural question facing Christians is." what do we think of when we say the word we? Mm-hmm. What do we think of first? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Do we think of ourselves as a nation state, as an ethnic identity, as a generational um, identity, as a consumer group? Mm-hmm. Or do we think of ourselves uh, first as part of the, the global body of Christ that's mm-hmm. spanning heaven and earth? And part of all of our lives is, is working toward seeing and recognizing That's who we are Mm -hmm. in the first uh, sense. We get that out of order, then you have people who will uh, freak out about Mm -hmm. where American culture is and often talk as though and sometimes even believe that Christianity is a means to getting America Mm -hmm. uh, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, when in reality what Christianity ought to do is not not to, to fix America so much as it is to get the church out of step with America in order to bear witness uh, to America and to the rest of the world, and I think if we get that confused. That's part of where this anxiety comes from.
1: You know, the, you know, the getting the picture of the mission right and actually getting the picture of the battle right is yeah. important. Uh, you know, one of the one of the problems I see with the culture war metaphor is is it's made people the enemy yeah. when people are actually the goal of mission right. in many ways, and. Uh, And in making them the enemy, we've we've got even if we have a military picture, it's the wrong military picture. It's not. uh, We have a battle. There's a war. It's a spiritual war. It's a spiritual battle. It's Ephesians six twelve. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces, principalities, and powers of the world, and. And what that means is is that if we're going to have a military metaphor, I tell people the military metaphor we ought to have is a special forces military metaphor where you go in and you're rescuing people who are taken hostage by another force and another power and with the opportunity to be rescued and to end up in a better place, yep. which the gospel itself does offer if people will recognize. And in fact, there's a wonderful passage in, in – uh, in 2 Timothy 2 that talks about uh, this rescue capability uh, that 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 it comes with the gospel and alongside repentance. And so I think it helps when you realize the person who's opposed to me is not someone who I should view as an enemy right. as much as someone who needs Rescue, And then, of course, the second great metaphor is the ambassador metaphor. We have a country. We have a homeland. That's established. It's established forever. We are secure in that relationship and in that position, and we represent that God. And whatever benefit we give to the country that we're living in, whatever it may be, because Christians are not just in America, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the American Christianity view tends to be myopic. uh if if we do what we do right and we accomplish what God asks us to do which is just to be faithful he's responsible for the responses uh then then we have done what we've been called to do uh in terms of cultural engagement
2: well that's right and and when i'm trying to speak to christians about that i'm speaking first to myself mm-hmm. because when you're sitting in a situation where you have someone across the table from you who is saying you're dangerous. You're mm-hmm. crazy. You're, you're our our fallen human response is to see that person as a threat, as an enemy, to mm-hmm. strike back. And that's mm-hmm. not just for people who are arguing on TV or on radio, but um, everybody has that experience. If you have right. a Facebook page, or if right. you have neighbors that you're talking to in in line, and so what what I have to remind myself of consistently is that this person across the table from me, who completely disagrees with me, may Well, be the person who will evangelize my future grandchildren.
1: Yeah, he might be a Saul who becomes a Paul.
2: Exactly. I mean, so if you think and and that I learned that from this um, deceased uh, evangelical theologian that you will uh, that you knew quite well, Carl F. H. Henry. Mm -hmm. In his his elderly days, I was talking to him. I was in my early twenties, and I was kind of really pessimistic about the future of evangelicalism. I said, you know, what do you see with all these seeker-sensitive trends and everything else, where, where is the future? And he said, you act like the future of evangelicalism is genetic. Mm-hmm. He said, that's not the way God works. Saul of Tarsus came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Chuck Colson, God takes people who are completely on the other end, flips them around, and doesn't just bring them into the fold, but often puts them in places of of leadership. And Mm -hmm. so I have to consistently be reminded this is not just someone created in the image of God that God loves but this also may well be my future brother or sister in Christ and it may well be someone that God is going to use tremendously for the sake of the gospel
1: yeah and i think another element of that conversation that's important is to sit there and say if i'm going to ask a person to trust what i'm trying to say to them and to and regard me as being sincere in what i believe I have to regard the other person as being yeah. sincere in what they believe and then and then we need to engage on the level of the ideas yeah and, uh, uh, and and so you know I tell people that when I'm engaging with someone my first responsibility is to just do a darn good job of listening mm-hmm. uh, hear what they're saying maybe hear between the lines what they're saying and why they're saying it actually I, I actually say one of the first good rules of of Cultural engagement for me is get a good GPS reading on where that person is coming from, which means allowing them to talk. I say, shut off your truth meter and just let them talk. Let them share who they are, why they're there. What they're concerned about, et cetera, You may actually find in that a series of motives and concerns that connect right. to what God that's offers right. in the gospel. That's right. And you and you and you get your bridge. And if they can supply the ways into the bridge, you're in a much easier conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And,
2: well, and and that's also true, not just with the people that you're talking about in that context, but. With the the other Christians to whom you're representing those people, I yes. mean, they, one of the easiest things there is to do is to go in and caricature right. uh, people who are uh, hostile to Christianity for various reasons in ways that ultimately, then, when your kids uh, encounter those people. Mm-hmm. And they realize these aren't stupid or evil people. These yes. are people who are operating out of uh, out of what seem to be very good motives. Of yeah. course they are. Yeah. They, if you have a deep biblical understanding of sin, mm-hmm. the Bible's told us that we mm-hmm. we 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 follow a way that seems right uh, to us. Mm-hmm. And so I think we set up Christians for uh, disappointment when it comes to. To actually knowing what what we're encountering out
1: there as well. In fact, I, f- I find many students who go to college. This is exactly what happens to them. Mm-hmm. We've vilified a person or we've vilified a position. They sit in the class and hear this person directly, and they say some of what this person says actually makes right. some sense. Right. <laughs> and, and and they go, did my church mislead me about mm-hmm. what? What motivates these people and that kind of thing, and that dissonance oftentimes creates the first steps, potentially away from the faith if we're not careful. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, it's, it's easy to do that to picture people as though they're supervillains in a lair, mm-hmm. um, in a cartoonish sort of way. That that ultimately it cuts you off from speaking to them, and uh, and it it causes the next generation to say, if you couldn't understand. These people or these ideas, then how do I trust you to tell me how to find my way through death? Mm-hmm. You know that's that's
1: a crisis. Or negotiate my way through life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, uh, let me turn my attention, uh, turn our attention to the hopeful things that you see. And I know you you, you said in the event that we had here, that's uh, why you're here. Um, you're pro millennial, <laughs> right? Okay, right. So. That's a new eschatological category right. for me. <laughs>
2: right. And by millennial, I mean generation. Yeah, I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. I, I'm assuming that you see what I also see, which is, I see a younger generation that really is sensitive to human need, to human dignity, that desires to serve, that's looking for ways in which society can function um, more harmonistically and less tribally than mm-hmm. it's tended. And 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 in many cases with a with a real deep Christian conviction in the midst of that, Mm -hmm. and and I read all those things and I go that actually is a pretty helpful combination. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I mean when when you look at uh, when you look at when I look at millennial evangelicals, uh, the typical millennial evangelical is far more theologically robust mm-hmm. than his parents or grandparents were. Uh, and and far more involved in the mission of God. And mm-hmm. and that really is because the culture has, in some ways, forced that. Yeah. Because you you, you can't simply assume a Christian identity. Yeah. They have to you,
1: carve out their. Christian you have identity. to carve it out. You yeah. have
2: to you have to constantly be questioning what do I believe, and then learning how to articulate that right. to people who who don't uh, see it at all. And they also have experienced a lot mm-hmm. of. Uh, Woundedness, brokenness in ways that are we all are, but in ways that are uh, openly manifest. And I think in ways that God has used uh, to create a generation that really is paying attention to uh, brokenness and woundedness all around.
1: And I think another feature that we tend to underestimate about this is the l- level of exposure that younger people have had to a variety of cultures yeah. because of because of the way communication works because of the internet, because of their own school experience. My, you know, I had a conversation literally yesterday with my son who lives in Switzerland but who went to Dallas public schools and we were talking about racial issues and what was had gone on here in Dallas recently and mm-hmm. those kinds of things and he was saying, you know, I went to school with, with a bunch of African-Americans and Hispanics. They were my friends. I played on sports teams with them, etc. cetera. He had a much less racially isolated upbringing than I did. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so he inherently understands th- their reaction to things that I have to work to understand mm-hmm. really. Right. And, uh, and that exposure ha- has taught them in some ways in good ways. About the variety of experiences that people can have in life, simply because of uh, where they were born and who they are yeah
2: and 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 in terms of even look at I mean there there's this myth that well, the next generation is moving left and moving into into heterodox views if if you're looking at who are the people who are likely to articulate a confession of faith? Who are the people who are likely to have and to maintain uh, church discipline mm-hmm. and accountability? It's the next generation. I mean, now the, they may be tattooed, mm-hmm. uh, and they may not look like uh, what people typically think of when they think of evangelical Christian in America. Uh, but they're people who are deeply orthodox and deeply concerned about what does it mean to be the church. I think that's that's good news and an improvement over what we've seen in a long time.
1: Okay, so uh, there's one other thing that I want to be sure we cover before we run out of time, and that's this: the the commitment to the invisible or what we might – what I would characterize as um, demonstrating that the gospel is ultimately about reconciliation and reconciliation across the full – huh. Depth of humanity that God has created. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. And and for this, I think the way in is to talk about the Luke four passage and the type of people Jesus said He was reaching out to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love for you to elaborate that theme for us.
2: Well, I mean, Jesus when He's giving His His inaugural sermon uh, of sorts in His in His hometown synagogue, uh, He starts talking about the kingdom of God. The people receive it really well. They like it. And then Jesus turns around and starts saying, "You don't understand what I'm talking about." Mm -hmm. There were Many widows in the land of Israel, and God went outside the boundaries of Israel to a Gentile widow. Went outside the boundaries of, of Israel to a Syrian leper, mm-hmm. and the people are alarmed by that. I don't think that's something that Jesus did one time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's what Jesus is doing consistently throughout his ministry, through the Holy Spirit, all through the Book of Acts, and ongoingly does for his church.
1: Now he's consistently pushing back against the people who thought they had it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he should have known better. Yeah. Uh, and he tends to be uh, gentle and inviting to the people who, who those people thought were so completely on the outside, God certainly wouldn't have much to do with them. Right, right. Uh, so they were invisible to some, but they actually were quite visible. In fact, they were the goal for God. Yeah.
2: And I think that's, that's the problem that we, we all have. I, mean, I, have a, I have a picture on my desk of civil rights workers in Memphis. Um with signs I am a man.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's the, the fundamental question mm-hmm. of who do we see and recognize as human beings, as our neighbors, uh, as, as, as Jesus talks about in, in Luke 10, as, as people who bear dignity and who are who are worth being paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are all sorts of people that it's not that we're hostile to those people. It's just that we don't think about them at all. Right. And I think sometimes that differs depending on what our uh, social and economic class is, what our political affiliations are, what our any number of different factors that cause us not to even see or to recognize those people around us.
1: So, um, so we we look at what's going on, in the chaos to some degree around us, and yet there is good reason for hope. What is, what is the way forward for the church as far as you're concerned?
2: I think the way forward for the church is to is to learn how to articulate the gospel and the Christian message to people who are not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of translation work. There's that a, needs a lot to of translation work that needs to to take place, and then to demonstrate that mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way that local churches, Uh, exist together, Uh, the way that we care for one another, the way that we care for the outside world, the way that we hold one another accountable, uh, the way that we bear one another's burdens. And so I think the kind of of model of church life where families are kind of driving in and worshiping and then dispersing on out is not a model of church life that has anything to do with what most of Christian history has been like, Mm -hmm. what most of Christian experience around the world is like. It also is not going to be a model that is going to be able to last or work. No in and an out Burger for Christians. No, no. no.
1: <laughs> it, it, it's uh, we had to find a different metaphor for how we think about ministry. I, 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 I think I agree. I think I, for me, the faith and work movement has become important in this because it basically says I don't think a mission is a church program. I think about where God has me as a calling, yeah. and in the midst of that, I live out my faith, and when I live out my faith well, and when I establish my credibility by how I treat people, interact with people, I create a platform in which uh, it's easier for the gospel to function.
2: Absolutely, and I think that I think there's there's uh, there's a real credibility that comes with churches that are vulnerable and churches that uh, that have a, a humility, and also churches as we we really do bear one another's burdens. And with all of the risk that that takes, and all of the brokenness that comes along with it, I think there's a I think there's there's a drawing power uh, to the gospel and to Jesus that takes place within congregations.
1: Yeah, and at the core of this of this care and engagement and vulnerability and humility comes a place where. You know, pe- the gospel does challenge people. It mm-hmm. does provoke people, but people will accept a challenge from someone they think cares about them. Yeah. And so uh, that becomes an important way in, and uh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I think the unbeliever asked the church, well, then show me that's mm-hmm. the case. How do I know that? And without a ministry that shows it, it's pretty empty words for a lot of people.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I need to see it.
1: Yep. Well, we thank you, Russell, for coming in and being a part of us, helping us take a little bit of a look at our culture and kind of where we stand. Appreciate your ministry very much. Oh well, thank you as well. And we thank you for joining us on the table and hope you'll be back again with us soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the table podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit DTS.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.